Job chapter 42, I will be reading verses 7 through 17. Here, for this is the word of the Lord. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams, and go to my servant Job, and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters, and all who had known him before, and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord has brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He had also seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first daughter Jemima, and the name of the second Keziah, and the name of the third Karen Hapuk. And in all the land there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations. And Job died, an old man and full of days. Thanks be to God for his holy word this morning. As we come to the end of the book of Job, we would be right in asking, what was the point of this book? What is the Lord telling us? What is the Lord trying to show us as believers? Well, we are to be reminded, first, that the book of Job is ultimately and primarily about God. And how God is in control of all things. And this was revealed to Job who made it all about himself. Secondly, it is about God being in a covenantal relationship with man. And in that covenant relationship, God never breaks his promises. So it is about the truthfulness and faithfulness of God to his people. His people are never without hope in this world. Thirdly, this book is about how, after the fall of man into sin, Christians do suffer in this world. And behind the scenes of our suffering, there is a cosmic and spiritual battle going on, which can bring the believer to low places in his Christian walk. It began in Genesis chapter 3 with the introduction of the serpent and how he was trying to prevent God from building his kingdom. 
He is the accuser of God's people. And once again, he is introduced in Job, and he has attacked Job throughout this book. But fourthly, this book is about how this suffering servant, Job, becomes triumphant because God is his God, and this enemy is powerless in comparison to him. God will fulfill his promise that the serpent's head will be crushed by the seed of the woman, as we see in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And so all of Job points forward to its fulfillment in the ultimate suffering servant, Jesus Christ, and how he will defeat Satan once and for all on the cross and how God will soon crush Satan under your feet. So what we finally come to here at the end of the book of Job is the hope of the Christian life. These verses speak of some of what we experience now and what we are looking forward to. So what we will see in these final 11 verses are all the gospel promises and elements the types and shadows hidden in the Old Covenant context of the Old Testament, but it has been revealed in the New Covenant in Jesus Christ. So what we will see in these final verses are the gospel promises of forgiveness, sacrifice for the atonement of sin, intercession, someone praying to God on behalf of man, and finally, restoration. So forgiveness, sacrifice, intercession, and restoration. First, we have the promise of forgiveness. The Lord has rebuked and corrected Job, and Job repented. Now God turns his attention to Job's so-called Wise friends, he turns to the ringleader, Eliphaz, and repeats what Elihu said to them. My anger burns against you and against your two friends. Why? Well, throughout the book, Job's friends have spoken falsely about God. They have not spoken of God what is right. All because they thought they had God's ways all figured out. Job... This is just how God punishes sinners, they were telling him. You're just getting what you deserve. But that was not what God was doing at all. He was using his servant to eventually disprove Satan's claims. And so he did. In trying to defend God's ways, they misrepresented his ways. So he said to them that they have not spoken what is right, as my servant Job has. Now, this may be a bit confusing, because you're probably saying to yourself, in the entire book of Job, when has Job spoken what is right about God? Hasn't he spoken what was not right about God when he accused God of wrong? Yes. The majority of Job's speeches were complaints about God and his justice, except... For the first five verses of this chapter. 
He had just praised God for who he is. He confessed his sin. And he repented. So, God forgave him. All that Job said against God prior to the moment of his repentance in chapter 42, the Lord no longer holds against him. It is like he never said what he said. All that Job has said in 20 chapters has been removed as far as the east is from the west from Job. The Lord is not going to bring those sins back up again. That is how the Lord forgives his people. Now, this is one of the great struggles that some believers have. There are some of us who lived sinful lifestyles prior to coming to faith in Christ. Yet a lot of us have to deal with friends and family always bringing up past sins and faults. Now this could be used to humble us, maybe for some, but for others this could be a great source of discouragement. But thanks be to God that He is not like man. If God says that you are forgiven in Christ, you are forgiven. Now this is why He says that Job has said what was right about him. Well, what did he say that was right about God? Job said to God, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Job repented of assuming or presuming about God and what God was doing and rather he praised God for his faithfulness and for his wisdom to know what he is doing in Job's life, unlike Job's friends. So this one verse is not only saying that Job's friends are guilty and should repent, but it is also saying that Job is forgiven. He declares Job right or righteous or a better translation, justified. Like the tax collector who beat his chest and confessed to God, have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. And this is what we all experience as believers. Although we don't see all the fruits of forgiveness, we still battle with the flesh. We still experience this fallen world. We still experience our own fallenness. Yet when we came to Christ by faith, we were forgiven and declared righteous. We were justified right at that moment. And that justification, guess what, can never change. Not even when we fall short. And let me remind you, we fall short daily. And one day, we will also be declared righteous or vindicated as Job is here. Because notice, he reaffirms and confirms Job as his servant. See, this is part of the bookends of the book of Job. He declared Job his servant in chapters 1 and 2. Job lived through a wilderness wandering, a life of suffering and failures and fallenness for a little while. Then he is drawn back to God and he declared him his servant once again in chapter 42. 
Job has been vindicated. His name has been cleared of all faults. His slate has been wiped clean. Isn't this the pattern of life of the Christian? Most of us, if not all of us, are going through some of what Job has gone through in this book. Like Israel, we're all going through our own wilderness wandering in this fallen world. Some of us have lost loved ones. Some of us are going through sickness and disease. Some of us are battling with sin. We normally don't think of fighting sin as suffering, but it is. We're, we're fighting against our own sin. But our ultimate hope is in the end, we would persevere, or better, that the Lord would preserve us. And we will hear the words of Jesus himself say to us, as the Lord says to Job here, well done, good and faithful servant. But this doesn't mean that Job earned his salvation. Job's faith depended on God's grace. His unmerited or demerited favor. Throughout this book, his faith was in a heavenly redeemer. A heavenly mediator. We see this in chapter 9, chapter 16, and 19. This would be the only grounds that he would be able to appeal to. And this heavenly redeemer one day would be manifested in the flesh. He would live a lowly life of suffering. But later, as Paul said, he would be vindicated by the Spirit, seen by the angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This heavenly redeemer was prophesied in Isaiah as the Lord's chosen servant, whom he upholds and in whom his soul delights. But before he could be vindicated, he was chosen to suffer so that we would be forgiven. And so what assures or seals forgiveness? The Lord has confronted Job's friends and said, you have sinned, so repent and you will be forgiven, just as Job has been forgiven here. But how could Job's friends seal their forgiveness? Through, secondly, a sacrifice, or at this time, sacrifices for sin. Here we see a transition. In the time of the patriarchs, which precedes the time of the Levitical priests, it was the patriarch, the, the father, the head of the household, who would offer sacrifices on behalf of himself and his family. But here, the Lord calls on Job's friends to take seven bulls and seven rams and says to them, Go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. That was unheard of at this point in time. Job would act as a priest who would represent others. Here it would be his friends who turned his enemies. He would represent others in offering sacrifices. He acted as their representative head and mediator. This was not the norm at this time. But this is the reason why everything that Job does here points forward to the one who would offer one sacrifice once for all for the sins of the people. 
namely Jesus Christ. And the number of sacrifices here would correspond with the offense. Their offense was much like uh, Balaam and Balak's offense in Numbers 22 and 23. Their offense was ignorance. Uh, We normally don't think of a lack of knowledge as being offensive towards God. But it is. Because on Judgment Day, we can't go before God and say, well, I I never knew. I I didn't know. You never told me. Nobody will have the grounds to do that. So their offense was ignorance. Balak called on Balaam to curse Israel. Then the Lord visited Balaam, and Balaam told the Lord to curse Israel for him. And the Lord said, no, they're blessed. They're my people. Don't curse what or who God called blessed. So to atone for their sin of ignorance, Balaam the prophet was told to call Balak, the king of Moab, to offer up seven bulls and seven rams. And this was a sign of their public repentance. So the same was required of Job's friends in order to be forgiven. As the author of Hebrews said, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Immediately after the fall, the shedding of blood was required for forgiveness. And every sacrifice in the Old Testament was a type or shadow of the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ on the cross, including the sacrifices that Job made. And the good news is, we don't have to keep making sacrifices every week, right? We no longer have to shed blood. The inferior covenant has been done away with because Jesus has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily. First, for his own sins, he was without sin, right? And then for those of the people. Since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. So just like all of the Old Testament priests, Job foreshadows the one mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ our Lord. And not only because he offers up sacrifices on behalf of others, but also because he intercedes for his friends. Listen to this. Later, the author of Hebrews says, When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, where he would be waiting the defeat of his enemies, but also that is where he always lives to make intercession for his people who draw near to God through him. And God accepts the prayers of his son, Jesus. So not only would Job offer up sacrifices for his friends, but also he was called to pray for them. He interceded for them. Thirdly, we see here the promise of intercession involving a mediator who prays to God on our behalf and the Lord accepts his prayer. The Lord told Job's friends, and my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So the Lord promised not to deal with Job's friends according to their folly, based on what Job 
did. Isn't that the good news of the gospel right in front of us? It's, it's written all over this text. Because the reason why the Lord accepted Job's prayer was because he had his righteous standing before God renewed and he is considered a righteous representative. As Peter says, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against all those who do evil. And so Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar went and did what the Lord had told them. And listen to this. The Lord accepted Job's prayer. This means not only was Job forgiven, but now his friends were forgiven. Based on what Job did for them. Based on his righteousness. Not their own. Job was their mediator. The one who longed for a mediator, this entire book became a mediator for others. Became a mediator for them. And not only did the Lord forgive Job's friends, but this also implies that Job forgave his friends. He prayed for them as the Lord Jesus would later teach his disciples and us to pray for those who persecute us. And to forgive those who sin against us. He said 77 times in one day, if necessary. This is another way of saying infinitely, an infinite number of times. Also, Paul tells Timothy, first of all, then I urge that intercessions be made for all people in high and low places, friends or enemies. Why? Because by the sacrifice and blood of Jesus, we have been made a holy and royal priesthood. And priests intercede for others. But not only that, but as the ultimate mediator, the Lord Jesus would also pray for his enemies on the cross. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, before we make this section all about Job's friends, what happens here is a sign that Job has been forgiven Accepted and vindicated by God. We see the mercy of God and that every believer ought to expect in both the present and in the near future. Right now, the Christian is forgiven based on the sacrifice that Christ has made. After he was raised and ascended to glory, Christ now lives to intercede for us as we walk this Pilgrim Road, and one day in the future, all will be restored to us. So fourthly, we see the Christian's hope of restoration. The Lord restored Job's fortunes, his status in society, his family, and grants him a long life. It says, and the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. And just like any one of us, if this happened to us, I hope we would throw a party for ourselves. Right? All his brothers and sisters came to his house for a feast and ate bread with him. He was no longer isolated and cut off from society. They showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. 
which was the original plan of his friends until they failed. And now his joy is restored. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. Also, the Lord restored his livestock. In fact, the Lord gave him double the livestock he had before. Instead of 7,000, he gave him 14,000 sheep. Instead of 3,000, he gave him 6,000 camels. Instead of 500, he gave him 1,000 yoke of oxen and 1,000 female donkeys. Also, the Lord doubled his family. Now, you're probably asking, well, he gave him 10 children as he had before. But remember, his dead children still count. They have eternal souls. So he doubled his children by giving him 10 more. Just because they died doesn't mean they're no longer his children. They still count, in other words. He has a heavenly hope of seeing them again. So the Lord gave him an additional seven sons and three of the most beautiful daughters in the land. Jemima, Keziah, and Karen Hupok. You can say Karen for short, for those who can't pronounce it. Which he gave an inheritance among their brothers. This is significant because in those days, the inheritance only went to the sons. I guess he learned his lesson. And the Lord gave him a long life, doubling the years which the psalmist says are the years of our life, which is 70. The Lord gave him 140 years, which follows the pattern of the number of years given to the patriarchs like Abraham and Isaac. And he would see his family grow for four generations. He would live to see his great, great grandchildren. So what is the Lord trying to reveal to us here? Well, this text was placed here to show us the gospel promises For the believer, that the meek shall inherit the earth. This is not here to show us how we are to become successful or prosperous. Remember Job repented while he was still on a trash heap battling a skin disease. He bowed his head to God before receiving any blessing. He he didn't praise him for anything in return. He praised God For being God. And the entire book of Job displays for us that faithfulness is not always accompanied with a good life. If anything, this book demonstrates how the Christian will live a life that includes suffering. And it points forward to a greater hope of eternal life. This book contains a prophetic promise. Just like the promises given to Abraham that the Lord would give him a land and multiply his sons, which Abraham will never see its fulfillment on this side of heaven. And here we get a glimpse of victory, the victory of Job over Satan and our final victory over Satan. But most importantly, we get a glimpse of the victory over Satan and the redemption that Christ has accomplished For all of us, including Job. Some people ask, why why can't we interpret this to mean that if the Christian repents and does good, he will receive material blessings in this world? We will see some sort of revival or a kingdom built here on earth. 
Isn't this what was promised to Israel when it was their time in the Bible? See, it is very easy to turn the gospel in the Old Testament into the prosperity gospel. Be righteous and you'll be rich. Now keep in mind the big picture here. Israel failed. Israel failed to attain and keep the promised land overall in this world. So we must interpret Job through the lens of the New Testament, through new covenant fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Listen to how James in the New Testament interprets what Job went through and what he was waiting for. Was he just waiting for an earthly reward? No. Uh, James says to a group of Christians who were suffering, he says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See, the context of what James says is the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, when he will return and restore all things. Then he goes on to give us an example. Who was the example of waiting for the coming of the Lord? He says, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job, as you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. See, Job was waiting for the coming of the Lord. His desire was the Lord. He said it over and over again that he wanted to appear before the Lord. After the Lord came to him in the whirlwind, he was illumined by the Lord and bowed before him. Not because of anything that the Lord would do for him, but because he is the Lord. He is the creator and savior. Job received what he longed for, and it wasn't just an earthly reward. Then he would go on to offer sacrifices and pray for his friends, or better, his enemies. And it was the Lord who was compassionate and merciful to Job to restore him. It was all by God's grace. It was nothing that Job did that earned anything from God's hand. God owes no one anything. He owes us nothing. What we deserve, we do not receive from the Lord. Because we deserve to be punished for our sins. So we can't interpret this text to say, if we do good, if we follow the Lord, we will be rich. We will have a kingdom on this earth. No. Because just like every type of Christ in the Old Testament, and just like every sinner, the book ends by saying, and Job died. An old man and full of days. Job died. Everything that was restored to him was left behind. Everyone dies. Everything we have here will be left behind someday. This is how we know that Job was waiting for something more than what was restored to him. And his death is how we know that he was not the one who would ultimately conquer death. But he did foreshadow the one to come, the Messiah, who would live a life of suffering, much like Job. He would die, and three days later, 
he would conquer death by being raised from the dead. And this would serve as his vindication when he was declared the son of God. He would then ascend to his throne and all things would be placed in subjection under him. And there he will keep our inheritance safe for us. We too are looking forward to when all things would actually be restored to us. We are looking for the great feast at the wedding supper of the Lamb where we will be crying out with the great multitude, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride, the church, has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. There, our joy will be restored. We will be truly prosperous and we will see the beauty of the new heavens and the new earth and the beauty of Christ our Lord, a beauty like no other. So after death, Job would hear what all of God's servants will hear on the day, the ultimate day of vindication. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Yes, Job made mistakes. He had his faults. We all have our faults. But by God's grace, we are forgiven in Christ. Our sins have been atoned for in Christ. We have a mediator at the right hand of God right now, praying on our behalf, interceding for us. And we too will hear these words one day and be granted entrance into our eternal inheritance because the Lord hears Jesus' prayers. But for now, although the Christian is justified and forgiven of all sin, The Christian life is marked by both blessing and suffering as we struggle in spiritual warfare, as we wrestle with mortality, as we live a life of waiting for the ultimate blessing of eternal life. This is not at all to say that we are never to be blessed with material blessing. Uh, Many of us who are celebrating the season will be blessed in abundance with material blessing. But those blessings are just a foretaste of what we are waiting for. And as we are waiting for the coming of our Lord, we should ask ourselves, how then are we to live? How are we to live? Well, as Paul says, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. We are to live as pilgrims, Because this world is not our home. We are to handle our earthly riches with a loose grip. We are to humbly submit to the Lord in all our trials. We are to live sacrificially for others. We are to pray for others, not just our friends, but also our enemies. We are to forgive others when they sin against us. We are to overlook Minor offenses. Jesus said, you are to greet even your enemies so that you would be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. We are to be a display 
of the kingdom of God on earth. Much like Job in chapter 42. We ought to live this way, not because we want something from God. Not because if we do A, then we'll have B. Unfortunately, that's how many Christians think. If we pray, if we do all the right things, if we introduce this program or that activity, we will change the world and we'll make the world be a comfortable place for us to live in. No. That's not why we live as Christians. We don't live as Christians just to see change in the world. Because you've got to ask yourself, well, what if living as Christians fails? What if it fails? What if we see no change? Many, for that reason, have turned their back on the church. No. We live like Christians because God is God. And He deserves the glory. And because He is gracious and forgiving, so we too are to be gracious and forgiving. And He has forgiven all our sins through the merits of Christ's sacrifice on the cross alone. Would that be our anchor? Would that be the source of our Christian lives as we live and die as Christ so that we may attain the resurrection of the dead, living for the glory to come? Amen.